Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Rebecca Solnit will talk about how she became a writer and a feminist in San Francisco in the 80s. Her new book, a memoir of sorts, is called Recollections of My Non-Existence. But first, Mike Davis on the coronavirus. Mike, of course, is best known for writing City of Quartz. He's got a new book coming out next month, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. I'm the co-author on that one. He also wrote a book in 2005 on another virus, the avian flu. That book is called The Monster at Our Door. Recently, he's been writing a lot about the new virus, including a couple of pieces for the nation. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. This week began with Anthony Fauci, our hero, declaring that we could see a million cases and 100,000 or 200,000 deaths from the coronavirus in the United States. On March 26th, the United States overtook China for the highest number of confirmed cases in the world. I know you've been following the news in other countries, many of which have been doing better than the United States at controlling the spread of the virus and treating those who are sick. China reports two deaths per million of population. The United States today, we're speaking on Wednesday, has 10 deaths per million. We haven't hit the peak yet. That's a death rate five times higher than China. Do you think we should believe their figures? And and if so, what have they been doing that we haven't? Well, China, in response to coronavirus, to COVID, did the same thing that happened in 2003 with SARS. That is, first of all, local bureaucrats suppressed reports of cases, claimed that they were fully in control. That allowed the viruses, both of them coronaviruses, to become epidemic. Then the central state stepped in, and it was entirely different particularly with the reportage of information. Right now, if you go to any of the major medical journal websites or the sites set up by the National Institutes of Health, almost total reliance on studies coming out of, out of China. And uh, even the Republican senator from uh, Louisiana, who's a gastroenterologist, while Trump was denouncing uh, uh, China for allowing this disease to become a pandemic, He was praising the Chinese for the open flow of information. So what we see here is a very dramatic difference between what the bureaucrats on a local level, on an urban level do, and what happens when the state, the central state intervenes and lets the Chinese uh, medical research establishment speak. Now, what was so effective in, in China is the lockdown of Wuhan allowed a breathing space so that China could bring doctors, medical personnel from all over China and concentrate them in Wuhan. Secondly, China had really ample stocks of all the protective equipment, testing gear that was needed because they're the the world's largest manufacturer of that. In fact, part of the shortfall in this country has been due to the fact that uh, we depend on manufacturers in, in China. And where the death rate in Wuhan was initially up to about 5%, it fell off dramatically 
and other parts of, of, of China as this vast mobilization came into action. We can't discount the role of uh, the almost 91 million member Chinese Communist Party and its grassroots organization. And if you read personal accounts of people, uh, Westerners who were in Wuhan, every apartment basically had a party member who was in charge of uh, sanitation and uh, who'd been primed by uh, medical experts on, on what to do. So it's a very different picture from this country as is South Korea, where the aggressive testing and the capacity to test anybody meant that South Koreans didn't have to shut down as much as their economy. It's been the case case here because we have no idea who has it, uh, who doesn't, who may have had it and has antigens. We can't test for that either. So we have a catastrophe. Well, China's gained bragging rights throughout the world and is now supplying the major, will become the major supplier of medical aid to Italy, for instance. Let's talk about Italy here. First, just one, one distinction. There's the, the mortality rate. That's the percentage of people infected who die of the disease. The statistics I'm looking at are deaths per million of total population, which is a very different thing. Italy, as of today, has 206 deaths per million population compared to the United States, 10 in China, 2. Uh, Spain is at 177 deaths per million population. Those are the two highest in the world. It's horrifying. Why do you think they're so much worse? Well, in the first place, you have to recognize that Italy is the second oldest country in the world. It's a geriatric country. It has... Uh, almost a quarter of the population is over 60, compared to West Africa, where only 3% of the population is over 60. So it has a much higher percentage of people who are immune compromised, uh, whose health is fragile, who have pre-existing conditions. As to the actual politics of what happened in the initial phase, that's something that I've been trying to understand, uh, correspondence with friends and family are in Italy now, but it isn't clear to me. The one thing that's dramatically obvious, however, is that the European Union has totally collapsed in the face of coronavirus. Italy could reasonably have expected that it would have got, as the initial epicenter, it would have received aid from its European sisters, but instead France and Austria closed their borders and prohibited the uh, export of uh, medical supplies to Italy. So you have to ask the question, will the European community survive this? Because it's a mirror image of their reaction to the refugee crisis, basically each man for himself. Let's talk about who gets forgotten in a pandemic. White-collar workers, of course, are pretty much all at home, but there's millions of wage earners in the United States uh, who are exhausted from working overtime at Amazon warehouses, delivering for UPS and Domino's Pizza, the people who are keeping the electricity and water on, collecting the garbage, the people stocking the grocery store shelves, the people taking care uh, of other older people in nursing homes. None of those workers are staying home, and all of them are, are vulnerable to infection. I've been reading... Uh... Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year about the Great Plague of 1665-66 uh, 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 in London. 
And he describes how most of the rich had fled the city, but the ones who remained in the the middle classes locked themselves in their homes and sent their servants out to get food, to go to the markets. Uh, And of course, the markets had to stay, stay open. And the servants and People who worked in the markets, the, uh, the butchers and so on, uh, died in mass from the plague. Uh, and that was considered, even by Defoe in the book, to be rather uh, inconsequential. I think that what we have to demand right now is two things. First, that nobody should go into a workplace without adequate protection, even if this means temporarily closing some of those work spaces. And and all the people that you talk about have to be accounted as uh, frontline workers. Everybody should be getting hazard pay. Who's taking the risk of of nurses and Amazon uh, uh, warehouse people. I mean, military gets hazard pay when it goes into a battlefield. And uh, since the president has declared this is a war, they should get hazard pay as well. And Amazon is a particular offender here because they're the corporation which stands to gain the most from this pandemic, not only because the volume of their sales has risen so high, or the fact that after this is over, if it is ever over, their volume will remain high. People have gotten used to shopping for groceries and so on and on. But above all, the fact that this is virtually an extinction event for tens, probably hundreds of thousands of small businesses. And that's competition removed. And Amazon will likely fill most of of that niche, which is why in the uh, print version of The Nation this week, I advocate an excess profits tax on Amazon and other companies, which are war profiteers in all but but name. Uh, Excess profit taxes were used during the First World War, the Second World War, and the Korean War. Well, let's talk about the future here. Uh, We won't have real control of this epidemic until we have an effective vaccine. I know you study the the science news on this. Uh, Do you agree with the people who say that the uh, vaccine development underway uh, has had some encouraging results? Yes, and so have antivirals. But what they haven't had is sufficient coordination by, by Washington and the CDC, of course, dropped the ball early on when it decided to manufacture its own test kits rather than use the ones already developed by the World Health Organization. Part of the tragedy of all this is that we had coronavirus in 2003 with SARS, and we're developing a vaccine. I think ABC News reported, or CVS today, that there's actually a refrigerator in somebody's laboratory that has a coronavirus vaccine which no company found profitable enough to actually develop. If there had been such a vaccine, it would have been a perfect platform to then move on and engineer it to deal with the current virus. And what about antivirals, treatment of people who have the disease? I understand there's clinical trials in place already to study antivirals. What can you tell us about where we stand on that front? I've been studying for the past couple of days what's happening in Africa and Trump's announcement that chloroquine would be a, you know, a kind of panacea for this was widely believed in Africa and started wild uh, uh, panic buying 
and uh, ended up in, in, in riots that the police were eventually firing at people. So there's been a tremendous amount of misinformation, but there's lots of stuff out there, probably a hundred different candidates for this. But at the present time, probably you know, the shortest route to reducing mortality is using the uh, convalescent plasma. Yeah, that's the blood plasma of people who survived the disease and have the antigens in their blood. And that can be injected into uh, patients. And there's uh, a lot of hopefulness about that. I haven't seen any indication from any of the administration's press conferences or releases that they're particularly pushing this. But it's the, you know, the simplest and the most common sense uh, solution in the short run. And what about the political dimension here? We know, of course, that Trump is massively incompetent and a megalomaniac. But uh, what about the Democrats' leadership on this? How have they been doing in pointing a a different direction from Trump? Well, I think Bernie Sanders uh, has been all out on this question and put to the public, you know, what are essentially the exactly the steps that need to be taken. And in fact, some of what Trump has done were things that Bernie was advocating uh, six weeks or two months ago, including uh, policy of income support for unemployed people and, and workers at home through the crisis. Biden has been all but invisible. The irony of all this is that uh, the president is now back to what he loves the most, which is being on the media 24-7. And because he's, in a sense, a master of, of television, his approval ratings have shot up the highest level since the inauguration. And his approval ratings in general in handling the uh, uh, pandemic so far, the last report I saw were almost 60%. But this is happening internationally. I mean, nobody has bungled this worse than Boris Johnson, the conservative prime minister of England. His ratings have soared. He's uh, more popular than he was when he first formed his uh, uh, government some months back. Uh, So we end up in this very paradoxical thing. The people who've done the most to prevent an effective response, those who are criminally negligent, are actually riding uh, small tides of popularity at the moment. Let me emphasize the small tide aspect here for Trump. Compared to other presidents, he's nowhere. Uh, after 9-11, George W. Bush's approval ratings went up from 50% to 90%. Trump has gone up from you know 44 to 47%. His overall approval rating has never cracked 50%. And, and these bumps tend to be short-lived and last for uh, a couple of months. So I think people made up their minds about Trump a long time ago. The people who think he's a megalomaniac and an evil force are not going to change their minds now. And the people who support him are going to keep supporting him. But that that is my assessment. And I have a PhD in governments. Well, you're right, John. But the point remains that it was reasonable to expect as Trump totally mismanaged the crisis after he had spent, you know, right from the beginning and right after his inauguration, he started cutting back public health budgets, trying to reduce CDC's budget, trying to kill 
Obamacare, it was reasonable to expect that right now some of his base should be wavering on this question. But because they live in a world whose parameters are Fox News, that's not happened. And his base remains as strongly with him as uh, as before. The Johnson case is even more spectacular. And and of course, the the red states, especially in the deep south, are the ones that are not practicing social distancing and the places where we expect the curve is is going to continue on its rise. Well, we'll see what happens uh, in the plain states and southern states, which have been opposed to uh, implementing this or slowing down economic activity. We're seeing that now in the case of New Orleans. The situation in Louisiana is very frightening because the Mardi Gras, of course, continued even after the uh, declaration of uh, national emergency. And it's likely to have been spread not just uh, through Louisiana, but through the entire adjacent parts of the South. And Louisiana and Mississippi, of course, have some of the worst public health systems, ICU provisions in the entire country. Mike Davis, read him on the coronavirus at thenation.com. Mike, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. One correction. Mike said antigens twice when he should have said antibodies. Antigens refers to the virus, which induces an immune response. The proteins that the immune system mobilizes to fight an antigen are the antibodies. Next up, Rebecca Solnit. She's the author of more than 20 books. Of course, they include the classic Men Explain Things to Me. And right now we need her book, A Paradise Built in Hell, which is about New Orleans after Katrina and how people help each other in a disaster. Also, her book, Hope in the Dark, it changed the lives of a lot of people, including me, and we need some of that hope right now. She writes for The New Yorker. She's a regular contributor to The Guardian, and now she has a new book out. It's called Recollections of My Non-Existence. We reached her today at home in San Francisco. Hi, Rebecca. Morning, John. This is a book about how you became a writer and a feminist in 1980s San Francisco. There's a unforgettable passage about the non-existence that's in your title. I wonder if you could read it for us. We often say silenced, which presumes someone attempted to speak. In my case, it wasn't a silencing because no speech was stopped. It never started, or it had been stopped so far back, I don't remember how it happened. It never occurred to me to speak to the men who pressured me then, because it didn't occur to me that I had the authority to assert myself thus, or that they had any obligation or inclination to respect my assertions, or that my words would do anything but make everything worse. I became expert at fading and slipping and sneaking away, backing off, squirming out of tight situations, dodging unwanted hugs and kisses and hands, at taking up less and less space on the bus as yet another man spread into my seat, at gradually disengaging or suddenly absenting absenting myself. At the art of non-existence, since existence was so perilous, it was a strategy hard to unlearn on those occasions when I wanted to approach someone directly. How do you walk right up to someone with an open heart and open arms amid decades of survival by evasion? 
All this menace made it difficult to stop and trust long enough to connect, but it made it difficult to keep moving, too, and it sometimes seemed as though it was all meant to wall me up at home like a person prematurely in her coffin. You write about a lot of scary things and creepy things that men did to you when you were young and some horrifying things that men have done to other women. But there's also a lot here that's exhilarating and beautiful. The very next paragraph, for example. Walking was my freedom, my joy, my affordable transportation, my method of learning to understand places, my way of being in the world, my way of thinking through my life and my writing, my way of orienting myself. That it might be too unsafe to do was something I wasn't willing to accept, though everyone else seemed more than willing to accept it on my behalf. Be a prisoner, they urged cheerfully. Accept your immobility. Wall yourself up like an anchorite. I was driven to go somewhere. There was partly a metaphysical urge to make a life, to become and transform, to do. But literal travel expressed that passion and let off that pressure. I was never going to give up walking. It was a means of thinking, of discovering, of being myself. And to give it up would have meant giving up all those things. Let's talk about this movement in in your book between the the horrible things and and the exhilarating things. It's all pretty intense for the reader. Yep. You know, I wasn't here to protect people. It might not be a book for everyone. But I really wanted to talk about a different kind of impact than we usually talk about. We have a kind of binary logic around violence against women. Either an extremely bad thing happened to you, which will treat as exceptional, though domestic violence, child abuse, sexual violence are so common they've impacted so many of us directly but we also say either it happened to you or it didn't happen to you and hey if it didn't happen to you you got off scot-free but as my friend heather smith said and i quote her in the book young women are encouraged to constantly imagine their own murder we've started to have a conversation about the fact that black parents have to give their sons what's been nicknamed the talk about the police and other authorities white supremacy that's going to criminalize them and want to kill them. We don't talk about the fact, and we should, that something similar happens to little girls of every race. Warnings about how you can't do this, you can't go there, you can't wear that, you can't be out at this hour, you can't take that job, you can't go camping and hiking alone, you can't go to the party, you can't have the cocktail, that your whole whole life is about limiting your possibilities to reduce your vulnerability. In the context that I grew up in, a context of people unwilling to do absolutely anything about violence against women, even to recognize it, this was such a nightmare for me, an undeclared war in which we were the victims, the targets were supposed to figure out how to survive, and nobody wanted to change the circumstances or talk about ending the war. Of course, feminists were talking about it then, sometimes in very brilliant and powerful ways. But, uh, you know, this book begins when I was 19, and I was many years away from being directly in touch with the writing and the voices and the people who were actually diagnosing this as an epidemic of violence that impacted us all. So it was really this terrible solitude, too, of being so threatened, so in fear that this was going to happen to me, 
and so unable to find anyone, even with anything useful, to say, like, this is not how your life should be lived. This is not who we should be as a society. Instead of, like, oh, you should cut your hair off. You should dress like a man. You should buy a gun. You should take the taxi and buy the car and move to the neighborhood you can't afford. You know, people had all these solutions that were just alter your life to accept that men want to grievously harm you, maybe unto death, and we don't really want to hear about it. And then a second part of this book is about reading and learning to write about these things. And there's a passage I love I'd like you to read on page 108. Sometimes when you are devastated, you want not a reprieve, but a mirror of your condition or a reminder that you are not alone in it. Other times it is not the propaganda or the political art that helps you face a crisis, but whatever gives you respite from it. Milan Kundera's The Book of Laughter and Forgetting was published in The New Yorker in installments the second half of 1980 and passed along in a stack of magazines, probably from one of my mother's friends. The chapters were, like Jorge Luis Borges' Labyrinths a few years earlier, revelatory. They gave me a sense of how you could mix things, how the personal and the political could spell each other, how a narrative could be oblique, how prose like poetry could jump from subject to subject or take flight, of how the categories were optional, though it would take me another decade to find my way through their walls. How the categories were optional. That's big, and that's what you do in, in, in this book. Let's talk about that. Yeah, no, this is really two stories braided together. And somebody called it an impersonal memoir, which I love because it is a very story about a very peculiar and specific life I've had, how I became a writer, how I gained a voice, but also a very generic story because my life as a writer and even the profession of writing is perhaps unusual or individual. But my life as a woman, I think, has been very generic. I've been impacted since before birth by violence against women. You know, it will never not be something I have to contend with one way or another. I'm watching the girls around me grow into young women and have to deal with it, with uh, watching it with horror. And I wanted to write about the very ordinary experience of how it affects you in ways I hadn't seen it described and to really put out there that we need to talk maybe in a more complex way about the more subtle ways it impacts you and impacts all of us. And so much of what happens to women is because of voicelessness, because you can't speak up and say no in a way that will actually have power because people won't believe you when you said it happened, because so much is orchestrated to discredit you and keep you out of the conversation, out of the room, out of the positions of power that are so much about the power of voices when voices have power. And because also we live in a world where some voices have too much power. Harvey Weinstein was able to use his voice and his money to silence dozens of women, some of the most high-profile women in the world, to use non-disclosure agreements, lawyers, Mossad spies, threats and intimidation, shame and harassment. And, you know, within a society that made non-disclosure agreements, blaming and routine disbelief that women were capable of bearing witness or credible witnesses to our own lives. So we have people who had not enough voice who are so often women, people who had too much voice who are men, particularly white men in positions of power, and that 
anti-democracy of voices has really been a central subject for me. And I wanted to describe what it meant to me in a really intimate, personal way growing up and how it became something I took on as a writer. And what formed you as a writer and a feminist, of course, was not only reading and thinking, but but doing things. And I have to say, I love your acknowledgments. These, I think, are my favorite acknowledgments I can remember reading. Can we talk about your acknowledgments? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. They're often such a shopping list, and I wanted to make it a kind of, you know, prose poem of gratitude, because this is a book about a bunch of men, mostly strangers, threatening me, a friend who was almost murdered, my father's violence mentioned in the background, so many other terrible things. But the book begins with an extraordinary man, a black building manager, World War II vet, son of sharecroppers, who'd come up in the Great Migration, who made, who gave me the refuge in which I became a writer, a little apartment in the building he was a manager of. So yeah, so he's at the beginning of these acknowledgements, Mr. James V. Young. And, and I'd and, always wanted to acknowledge him, so he's got a big place in this book. And can I ask about, how about if you, you want to read some of this? <laughs> okay. So nobody's ever asked me to read from my acknowledgements before. This is so great. <laughs> Here we go, and this is page three, because there's a lot to be grateful for, even in a book that's partly about misogyny and violence and difficulty and silencing. Thank you to both my 1991 Gulf War and 2002-2003 Iraq War, Bay Area Direct Action Secret Society, acronym BADASS, anti-war affinity groups, Thank you to the handsome bikers at the Denny's on the I-5 north of Los Angeles who listened and let me convince them that Anita Hill was telling the truth one morning at a shared table in October 1991. It was a great landmark moment for me in its own way, and they were really handsome, too. (laughs) Thank you, Cleve Jones, for that moment in 2018 when, because I showed up with a magnificent Defend Democracy banner artist Stephanie Sajuko had made, you put me at the head of a march of gay men down our central boulevard. Perhaps it's my greatest moment of arrival as a San Franciscan. A lot of people are surprised that the gay movement was so important to you in your development as a feminist. How did that happen? You know, I am a straight girl, tragically, but... But I am so proud and so grateful I grew up in what was, at least when I was growing up, the queerest city in America. And um, gay men in particular, but all people refusing their gender assignments, dykes and lesbians and trans and drag queens and so many kinds of people were just there saying, we refused our assignment, we refused the binary logic and the lockdown that is heterosexual roles. And, you know, we're liberated by example so often. And I feel that I've learned also from black rights movements, from the Native American land rights movement that was such a formative part of my coming up, the Western Shoshone Defense Project. You learn by how people see things differently, by how they question assumptions, by how they refuse the inevitability of the status quo 
and gay culture was just so encouraging and so many individual gay men who are my friends and you all know who you were were so generous so warm they really liked women in ways straight men often didn't seem like they particularly did except in specifically utilitarian ways and they were able to have these conversations and living in a black neighborhood i felt like i learned from my neighbors a lot just about what you can do with words about playful banter the music of spoken language of how just a greeting can become a gift of how to talk to passers by on the street and gay men proved that every conversation could be an occasion for wit for warmth for insight for critique for irony and there was also so much humor and we see humor often as something trivial and there's a kind of vicious humor specifically by a lot of straight male stand up comics that's a kind of punching down but there was a gay humor that was punching holes in people's assumptions and pointing out what was ridiculous in everyday life and heteronormative stuff and a big part of my cinema education was watching movies in the Castro movie theater one of the last great movie palaces in the US and sitting there in the dark listening to snickers and murmurs and sighs and groans pointed out to me what was ridiculous or campy or queer about movies like the movie giant one of my favorite movies of all time with with Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson James Dean Salminio is full of secret homoerotic campiness and gay men taught me that cuz i've seen that movie there over and over you know the magnificent seven begins with oh god yul browner sitting on some other hunk's bed and it's like it is so gay but these <laughs> men they were so kind they were so supportive they could be funny even about heartbreak and devastation which is part of how you survive those things and they were just really good friends and joys to be around and you know i my black neighborhood the western edition was really about one neighborhood over from the castro so i had specific friends but i was also around just the way people lived in public in the days before aids and during aids aids and after protease inhibitors and it was just a huge part of my life and gay men and queer people and lesbians and trans friends and stuff still are and you know it's a blessing Rebecca Solnit her new book is Recollections of My Non-Existence Rebecca thank you for everything you do and thanks for talking with us today My pleasure John thank you so much Start Making Sense a podcast from the Nation magazine is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios our audio engineer is William Broughton Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for start making sense listeners you can get digital access to all our articles for less than a dollar 50 a month 
Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. We'll be right back.